thing. So I should not so. lead with my incredibly annoying Matt Iglesias impression? Absolutely not. <laughs> I love to talk about things I don't know anything about. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's, you know, both of you have Maddie impressions that are like different <laughs> and yet horrifying in their own. Like yours sounds more like Elmo, whereas Arby's sounds more, uh, yeah, I can't even say. Shout out to uh, one of our friends on the server said that I, my Matt Iglesias impression impersonation sounded like the Heath Ledger, Ledger Joker. Which oh, I yeah, think it did. Is, yes. So it's it Elmo and Heath Ledger accurate. Joker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like Elmo's good. I was kind of going for more like Gilbert Gottfried on ketamine. Do you want to see how I got this housing tax credit? <laughs> <laughs> now both of you are scaring me. Uh, Welcome to the Duff Panel. We are fully listener supported. If you like the show and you want to support us, then become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. So on the docket today is Biden's infrastructure bill and the resulting debate over if the bill is even infrastructure at all. But before we get oh, started, yes, a, a really good debate that everyone who watched the West Wing will probably find <laughs> interesting. A definitely good faith. Actually important to have debate. Yeah. Oh yes. my God. It's 1997 not, all over again. Definitely yeah. not sound and furious signifying nothing. Yeah. But before we actually get to that, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on how terrible it is to be right all the time. Yes. So in March of last year, we despaired that our political economy is more likely to put up a monument to the dead than to reorganize itself in any way, shape or form to help people. And cue Andrew Cuomo, who has just announced a <laughs> surprise, surprise monument to essential workers. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I actually I went back and listened to that episode, which was called COVID Care for All, uh, which was from the end of March. And there's so much stuff in there that actually just like basically immediate, like completely maps to everything that we talked about over the last entire year. Yeah. Which is sad, but yeah. And I mean, you saw this uh, right after Biden's inauguration too, where there were, there were a couple like takes out there that were like, oh, you know, Biden's memorial of like a bunch of flags on the lawn was really what we needed to heal the nation because really the big issue was that the Trump administration wasn't properly acknowledging the suffering that was going on. And that's the problem with COVID, not, you know, the fact that people are dying preventable deaths. It's representation, really, at the end of the mm -hmm. day. That's that's yeah. the, mm -hmm. the lesson from this. I mean, yeah, I think that really, like, obviously, when tragedies happen, people write symphonies. You know, there are epic poems. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, like, art and literature and, uh, of course, monuments. But I, I, the thing about this one is, like, this is the government who could otherwise be or should otherwise be like responding to the thing and like the performance of the end of the disaster before the disaster is ended. That's the thing about this thing that like really grabs me. It's like, yeah, of course, people make monuments. They make art like they, they, they commemorate things uh, or they don't. 
Uh, but in this case, it's I, I don't know. Is this is this a sign that like just there are too many PR people working in government now? And, yeah, I don't I don't know. What was the the comment that Andrew Cuomo I think used to to talk about it when he was announcing the thing in the first place was like COVID was a war. Was like, a war. We, exactly. We fought the war as you know brilliantly illustrated by the book that he put out in the middle of like the fall wave you know we fought the war it's over now we're going to put up a monument i'm just like i'm wondering like what the fuck this is even going to be because you know we've talked about this on the show a lot actually throughout the years in like bits and pieces throughout different episodes but i feel like the american approach to monuments is a very is like is one where like I feel like the history of sculpture and land art just becomes like hyper compressed into this like <laughs> extremely didactic kind of like Thomas Kincaid version of public sculpture or yeah. something like that. I have an extremely hard time imagining that the New York Essential Workers Monument, whenever the whatever whenever the committee that meets to discuss and figure out what that will be, will be anything, you know, like we're not going to get like the monument to the third international here. Right. You know well, what I mean? Right. <laughs> and we're not even going to get like the WPA murals, which is yeah. what I think is. Well, I think the thing about Cuomo, right, is that this this monument, which is like a monument to like apparently essential workers. It seems to have a lot of like union involvement. And like in my head, like the ideal version of something like this is like if you go around like the state capitol at Harrisburg and you look at the doors of the different like departments emblazoned in the doors uh are these uh, bas reliefs of of like workers of different uh of different kinds and i like i sort of like that stuff but i think the thing about cuomo is he made a monument already right. to him, <laughs> and, and most importantly to himself i yeah. mean the 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 mountain uh art i don't know what that was it a painting the styrofoam it was a sculpture. sculpture it was a I styrofoam think, yeah. sculpture of like the the mountain uh, which, of course, like of the curve had, of deaths, literally, yeah. the curve <laughs> literally of deaths, a visualization he, of the deaths. Yeah, that he had like brought down, but then, then of course, like went uh, back up. Was was not a monument to anybody but himself. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing that really like distinguishes this. Like these monuments, in a way, not only like obscure, like have, have the potential to, like obscure quite a bit, as, as monuments often do, but like. Certainly in the case of Cuomo, they're only ever monuments to like his posterity. Well, I think it also shows the incredible narrow limits of his imagination, too, because so far the only, like the two monuments that he's really rolled out is, are the uh, the Curve of Death's Mountain, right, which is so incredibly literal. And then you had the Wall of Mask art. Remember that oh, one? Oh, I forgot about that one. Where yeah. he had people making masks and sending them in so they could be immediately stapled to like a, a gigantic plinth of some kind that mm -hmm. he then displayed. And and I, I mean, I think I feel like if he was really smart, what we would get is something that looks like Raft of the Medusa, maybe on First Avenue or something, but that's <laughs> not going to happen. You know what I mean? It's going to be like the giant dog sculpture with a taxi on its nose outside of the NYU building on 34th Street. Oh my God. Yeah. No, I know. I know what you do to make it uh, really accurately depict, like to truly accurately depict the way that uh, essential workers were like leveraged ultimately for the I hesitate to even say reopening the economy, but the continual perpetuation of the economy just remaining open, in fact. <laughs> right. I think the way that you do that is you take a page from like uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres, mm. 
So the monument is a large accumulation of objects that you can take, like a takeaway piece, right? Oh. Um, except in this case, they're all app-based delivery service bags with like a bottle of rosé and anti-union propaganda in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I loved this uh, quote that he had that he's been rolling out in pressers, which is just when when the your children ask what happened to mommy and daddy when they died, you can take them to the monument and explain how we won the war against oh COVID. Yeah, I mean, but this is the other thing, which is that like I, I don't know if this is like specific to the to the question of monuments, which of course like is attracting I've seen other people like, you know, make arguments on behalf of like having monuments to COVID. But for me, it's like the only monument I want, the only thing I want to be reminded of is the anger uh, yeah. that I continue to feel. Like any any art that doesn't help me channel that and like tap into that in a, in a productive way, I don't want to see. And like I just my own <laughs> my own uh, experience with like any American monument is like, you know, there are a couple different experiences I've had looking at them. like one is what am I looking at? I don't even necessarily reckon like this is not legible to me. What what even am I walking past? You know, and and then the other one is like you know on, on this date something happened, uh, right. and it, it's entirely obscure exactly what happened. Like to to capture exactly what happened in a monument would be to you would have to portray scenes that no monument that no like that would not be acceptable in like the vernacular of like public art <laughs> well yeah so i guess uh, in that sense probably the the best thing that this committee that cuomo is putting together can do is to make this as actually uh, abstract and abstruse as possible mm-hmm. of a monument so that because i feel like the more the more sort of uh smarmy and chest beating it is the more likely it is to actually evince those feelings that you're talking about of like just anger at what happened there to like become unintentionally this Mm -hmm. monument to like to basically how everyone was from the fucking beginning like patting themselves on the back for their fucking terrible response wait i think i've got it i think i think the monument should be just a bunch of Cuomo's uh, like books that he wrote, like his 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 autobiography, <laughs> just like you know, in in various pyramids of his autobiography, and then like Larry Hogan's autobiography of the <laughs> pandemic. I exactly. think I think that's the way to go. That's yeah, just get a Rachel White Reed to cast it in a bunch of resin and leave it on the block. Somewhere. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. where all the all the unsold copies of his book can go instead of getting pulped. Yeah, <laughs> or, or be- better yet, him. pulp them all. And then make the, the thing. Yes. Yes. Out of it. I think that would be yes. great. Absolutely. Yes. Transformative. Transformative. Anyways, we should move on. So <laughs> the discourse is alive this week with discussion of infrastructure. There have been uh, a lot of debates over what exactly infrastructure is and means after this American jobs plan was released. Um, it's being portrayed as like a vision between an expansive vision of infrastructure, which would be the Biden camp's very vague pronouncement on this and a narrow version of infrastructure, which is, uh, you know, Republicans calling for bridges and tunnels only. But that sort of distinction really does not actually portray what is really going on here. Yeah. So this is like, you know, the this is one of the most annoying things that happens in I feel like the Washington press corps and like media uh, circus, which is that like the debate ends up hanging on an issue that not a single soul 
really cares about, which is like, well, they said that it's infrastructure, but is it really infrastructure? <laughs> Who gives a shit? Um, right. Like, first of all, most people don't even have a working definition of infrastructure in their head because it's an obscure word. Right. It means under the structure. Like, uh, so... Okay, who cares then what it means? Because clearly it doesn't really mean anything. Um, but there, you know, the, like the the Politico like playbook is like, well, there are eight hundred and twenty one billion dollars in this that are definitely infrastructure. By which, of course, they mean like the standard roads, highways, bridges are right. crumbling, uh, bullshit, uh, transit. Um, then then there's like one hundred eleven billion that like seems like infrastructure, which of course you know. Uh, anything anything that's like socially reproductive that like allows the economy to go is in like definitionally in in like an identity sense like is infrastructure right um and then they're like oh it's infra there, there are things that infrastructure ish uh which is like 328 billion and there's like not even close to infrastructure for now i'm just gonna go completely <laughs> into the voice 400 billion which of course by which they mean the uh, the, the the only way to say those things is to say it in the voice. Like yeah. Part of it is the tone. That's the only way that you can get those words together and like actually, you know, actually like and actually finish the sentence. You yeah. Know? So they're yeah. like, oh, 400 billion is definitely not infrastructure by which they're talking about home care services. Right. Now, mm -hmm. th right. Which which we will get into exactly mm -hmm. what what that means. But the thing that I kept wondering is like, why? Why did Biden have to call this infrastructure at all? Like, it indeed, the name of the thing is the American Jobs Plan. Right, yeah. <laughs> so why is anyone hanging on this idea of infrastructure? And, like, the first thing that occurred to me was, like, well, I guess this is sort of like a political uh, trick whereby infrastructure was this thing that was left off the agenda in the Trump years and every was, like, this inside joke in Washington right. like oh infrastructure week like which the, about the second time I heard that I was ready to uh, just end it yeah, um, at that point it's like the um, worst version of um, like pledge week or rush right. or something well but also doesn't that make just like do calling this the ca calling the American jobs plan quote unquote the infrastructure bill or saying infrastructure week has finally arrived doesn't that just mean that they're basically doing well, not even doing policy, but doing the political theater of unveiling this policy as basically like a late night host gag. Yeah, yeah, it's very gimmicky. It's very much like I feel like it has the vibe of kind of like a, a an op-ed or think piece that's like you thought home care was about health care. But let me tell you why it's actually about infrastructure and the survival of society. Well, which, and, you know, obviously, to be fair, I think we're like we've we've talked a lot about how you know stuff like it like it's important to understand things like housing as healthcare yes. like food as healthcare not in the sense also of like transit as healthcare healthcare yeah. as infrastructure right and healthcare <laughs> as infrastructure and all these things so so in that sense it's actually it, it's actually just kind of absolutely absurd to see not even absurd it's like actually very uh unsurprising i guess to see yeah. uh all the like political commentary it basically say like well this isn't actually infrastructure um, right because like obviously they're not really i think inclined to uh to view the political economy through that lens because it really doesn't when you view the eco political economy through that lens it really doesn't benefit like a standard neoliberal perspective right but i, but I think the thing too though is it's like important to remember is that like the whole infrastructure week thing, I mean, the grouping all of these transit and so on is like infrastructure is a fairly like recent innovation. Like you used to just call it like 
the surface transportation bill or the tra- the right. transport bill or the high well before that the highway Highways. bill but of course like this is one of the, the the political history of this is like at some point uh there was a huge reaction to the fact that when we spent on infrastructure we just spent primarily on highways and not like mass transit and any other like form of of uh, infrastructure and now obviously the economy works so much differently. There's internet and I think there's this push to you see all of these sort of imaginary maps of uh, uh, new new train lines, which to which I can say Milwaukee to Duluth or bust. We're going to the Twin <laughs> Ports, baby. Um, Hell yeah. But uh, there's so much to do there. The Leif Erikson Museum. I mean, I could go on. Uh, <laughs> but the but the other thing and like the far more frustrating thing to me about this is the underemphasis on the need for like a public jobs bill. And I think that that's more than just like this, the political theater of like the last six or seven years and far more to the fact that like since the 1970s, the idea of like public jobs has been something that, you know, Congress, uh, including congressional Democrats, have been pretty like allergic to. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of interested in that because, you know. Back, if you look back to like the 1970s, we had like a massive explicit program by which the federal government created public jobs. And if you were unemployed for like, um, I think at least seven days, you could uh, apply and qualify for a public job, right? That had a certain like uh, set, like a good wage um, and, and wasn't like a crappy, uh, unstable, like private market job. So there was this law called the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, CETA. Hmm. Um, and it was this like huge federal bill that would, you know, uh, that provided like public jobs. Like largely it allowed the lo- local governments to have federal funding to provide these jobs. So it was this huge like jobs bill. But then what happened in the 70s was all of these sort of Washington watchdog like reporters, sort of like fiscal conservatives, the business community. Um, as well, because of course the business community didn't like public jobs. It means that you have less control over the labor force. Um, they started filtering up these stories of like waste, fraud, and abuse. My favorite mm. one, and the one that was the most widely cited, uh, was this description of the public jobs bill. It, here it goes. CETA funds supported a nude sculpting workshop in <laughs> which naked men and women ran hands over one another's bodies and body drumming classes in which inner city youth were taught how to slap various parts of their bodies <laughs> rhythmically. In Atlanta, CETA funds paid the former leader of the Black Panther Party, an avowed Marxist-Leninist, $475 a month, as he said, keep an eye on city, county, and state governments and their jiving of the masses, Which, to which I can say, Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds Hell great. yeah. Can we expand that programming? The, the, there are cool things that the federal government could do, you know, Just in some cases we've done them maybe by accident or, you know, again, like dragged kicking and screaming to do it. But, but God uh, forbid there, there, there are more figurative artists trained in America. You today. know what? Yeah. You know what? Actually, this infrastructure bill needs the American <laughs> Jobs Act needs is more funding for the perverted arts. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So like what happens is that like by 1978, these stories keep filtering up and you've now got this new context of like increasing budget austerity. And uh, what happens is there's like a, an amendment to the law that says, well, now we're going to restrict eligibility for these public service jobs to a very, very small 
uh, segment of uh, people with incomes uh, below the poverty line. And basically what that does is it it eliminates a lot of the constituents. It makes makes it so that there's so few jobs um, that there's not much of a constituency for this in Congress. And by 1981, even though you know Democrats largely still sort of support the law, uh, there's this huge budget battle with Reagan and there's like not enough juice to maintain it. And so what happens mm-hmm. is they create this other law, which gives private employers all of this power to use public money to have effectively job training programs. Uh. And by the 1990s, this you know becomes sort of the work uh, Workforce Investment Act. And instead of having uh, local governments in control of these public jobs, you have these workforce investment boards that are chaired by and run by uh, private employers. Oh, and, and so like I feel like this is like part of the legacy of these policy choices means that it like having a a public jobs bill and being able to like say that this is a public jobs bill, you can see that they're trying to do it because they call it the jobs bill, right. But yeah. then, and somehow it like that doesn't have any currency. Like it's almost like political reporters don't even understand what that would mean. <laughs> um, and so they have to call. They're like, well, there's some roads and bridges stuff in there, and like that was a big part of it. And so they're, they're just calling it the infrastructure bill. And thus, anything that doesn't look like that thing begins to be like, oh well, what is? And it and it is just like a stupid West Wing plot at that mm-hmm. point. We're like, well, the president called it an infrastructure bill. Wow, it wasn't. You know, th- that's that's the sort of like tone and diction uh, of, of the debate. But it's just stupid because it's just a public jobs bill, right? I feel like so much of the conversation about this has actually been trying to minimize the employment, the minimize the employment aspect because it's almost like. If you don't want this to pass, then the thing you have to do is minimize the employment because that's what's incredibly attractive right now to like the average person who might be working like a gig job or working for Amazon. And it really would, I think, be like a much more interesting conversation to have this be talked about in terms of jobs versus like this sort of abstract infrastructure framing, which almost like tries to make it seem like it's things that just like happen to people or like just, you know, that it's automated in some sense. There's this sort of like dehumanizing of the worker that happens in the frame of this, like translating from like a plan to like pay people to pay people like better money to do long-term care, pay people to build stuff, fix stuff, you know, replace lead pipes, get rid of like lead pipes in schools, upgrade HVAC in schools. If you talk about it that way, it's like much harder to be like, "Eh, it's too expensive. Like, I don't really know if this is like a good idea, you know, because then it like directly, I think, makes you look like a terrible, horrible, evil monster. But if you talk about this as infrastructure, right? And it's like, oh, well, it's just like all this sort of frivolous spending on on abstract construction and building and whatever, then it, re- it really takes out of like that, the sort of like human equation of like, well, this would actually really maybe be helpful for some people right now, especially considering the context of like, what's going on with COVID. Well, I mean, I think lest people get the wrong idea though. I, I think there are things there like a lot of the stuff in this bill or not. It's not even a bill really it's in this, like in this like proposal. It's, it's kind of plan. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's uh you know, it's, it's functionally like very similar to like a lot of the um, campaign document plans basically that, that uh, happened throughout the election cycle, for example, that there were, the, that were primarily really these like big long, like medium posts, literally, but lest people think 
for example, that all of these are necessarily uh, that the suggestion is that like in this plan, uh, everything that is being suggested is like the creation of public jobs. Right. I think actually like the long term care provision for as for as little, uh, you know, formal detail is is as is in this plan. I think the long term care portion of it, the uh, quote unquote caring economy uh, portion of it is actually really instructive because there's this big there's this big figure right and they talk about it. we're going to put 400 billion dollars into uh long-term care services uh and over like other years. types of like yeah over eight years over and other types of like stuff in the uh quote-unquote care economy that is a lot of it going to be going uh for example to f- to fund like long-term care through medicaid and if you know anything about the way that that structure currently works the thing that they're saying which is like, and this would pass through to the workers mm-hmm. who like do long-term care work, like the very, as we've talked about a lot here, the extremely underpaid, pretty like exploited like work workforce of home care home care workers on mm-hmm. on, the, on average. It, it's not like this is a public workforce necessarily. You are you are still talking about like if you're doing it, the like the problem with doing it in. It, just in this way like it, it is one thing obviously i obviously things like long-term care as we talk about a lot like anything that anything that especially like allows people to get care in their homes and to not end up being like forced into an institution obviously extremely important the way that you do it however if you're just kind of funneling money into the existing system is not necessarily inherently going to like encourage there to be like higher wages for these people or whatever like the things that are uh, the things that are like laid out in this plan like because fundamentally still a lot of this stuff is going through like pass-throughs of companies that are that you know run healthcare workforces and stuff like that or like you know medicaid programs are still in in a lot of states like administered but administered through private insurance companies which like is you know all of these are reasons to do (laughs) to have done something like even if you want to spend it as infrastructure a medicare for all program including long-term care and building out i don't know like a a huge public home care workforce like that would you know that's something that you could do as opposed to you know just just saying like we're gonna we're gonna like write a bigger check the real the real thing to do would be to like take 400 billion dollars and hand it to cms to start administering an ssa like long-term care program to everybody in medicare too because right add to medicare you know the fact the fact that we have like everyone's like oh hand waving like oh we have this this approaching cliff this explosion of of senior citizens that are coming we're going to have this like care crisis right the sort of fear-mongering about the oncoming wave of senior citizens that really encourages us to sort of formulate these uh these us versus them narratives of of like all the quote-unquote old people who are going to be eating up all of our resources and then not contributing to the economy (laughs) haha but um you know it's like it's being framed as like oh we've got this like aging population that's coming from us and we have to deal with it and like this is the best way to deal with it and it's like well okay really the best way to deal with it would not only be like injecting like throwing money at medicaid but like what about the fucking all of the people on medicare who are not on medicaid who don't have any access to this other than the private market like a very very cheap way to do this would be to just biden do some like fucking technocratic like cms program where you can get like 
IHHS care through like just Medicare. Right. And like, that's not even discussed. And in so many of the ways that this is being talked about in the media and, and by like talking heads is like, as if like everybody who's on Medicaid getting long-term care or on a waiting list for Medicaid long-term care is the population that needs long-term care, that there aren't any other people possibly outside of that very narrow window, maybe who couldn't qualify for Medicaid for whatever reason, maybe because they're incredible administrative burdens, people have to spend down, sometimes people well, have to get the, divorced. Or all the people who are, you know, who are currently like on Medicaid and just can't get and like can't get care. enough long-term care or right. long-term care at all in some cases. Yeah. Right. And so it's kind of being like discussed as if it's like, well, you know, all the people that don't have long-term care are in nursing homes. And so it's really about, about catering to the preference of people in nursing homes who would really prefer home and community, community-based services, which is like not only absolute bullshit, but shows zero understanding of actually what the long-term care landscape is, who is not served from by it. Like how many people actually need long-term care who cannot afford to access it on the private market, who do not qualify for it in any other context and how incredibly austere the way that we like administer this is and how horrible and coercive it is for the workers, for people who participate in the programs. And it's, it's like absolutely, absolutely brutal. The, the current like long-term care marketplace. And it's just being portrayed as this like simple, you know, issue of like preference, not like, oh, we made a promise like decades ago and oh, there was a Supreme Court decision <laughs> in 1999. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's like really what they're doing is making the very smallest gesture towards upholding the Olmstead decision in 1999. Yeah, this four, this $400 billion is about probably not even doing the bare minimum. No, really. it's not just like gesturing at the bare minimum. Like, and it's two decades late. Two yeah. at minimum. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. I, I mean, I in trying to understand this, like, why, why do it this way? Well, like, one is you could just point to I don't know, I guess, like, lack of any kind of rich policy imagination, and that probably gets you a good <laughs> chunk of the way. But I think I, that that obviously is part of it. The other part of it, I have to imagine, is they are thinking in this. I, I think about it as like the 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 real death and end of like interest group liberalism as a way of doing policy, which is that you think about the groups that exist, right. Or like the constituencies that are already, you know, they have, uh, their shingle out like in DC somewhere. Um, they, they maybe have sent you a memo or something. And, and, and the prospect is like, they have the juice necessary to get this through. Um, rather than thinking about it as like a problem, and mm-hmm. the the problem might not always affect people who have that level of cachet. Right, and yeah. and and that, you know, I think part of the the absence of like policy imagination is not thinking beyond the sort of like extant, well mobilized interest group landscape and instead, you know, ignoring the possibility like, oh, maybe we could create a constituency or call together a constituency that has really, really been uh, marginalized from all of these policy frameworks and which actually needs a voice. 
um, and not thinking about the potential power of government to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's the real like lack of imagination for me. Well, I think this is something that you've seen also in the discussion of like deaths in congregate facilities throughout the pandemic. There's been like conversation about like, oh, well, like the United States has like such high death tolls and like it's because the response is so bad. And it's like, well, also it's because we have this preference for warehousing people and turning bodies into this like, um, you know, if someone's not productive enough for the state, they become like really attractive to the state as a person to like, you know, put into a jail or prison or um, a nursing home. And and really what it is, is that we have this policy preference for institutionalized care in the United States, which has a long history, right? This is something that's been happening since the 1600s. It has roots back to Victorian England. But the fact of the matter is, compared to other countries, our system of dealing with people who are not, quote unquote, productive to the economy is to warehouse them. And COVID makes that look very bad. And I know we've a lot of people have mentioned like, oh, well, you know, it's all the nursing home deaths in the context of discussing why America has more deaths than certain other countries. But there's this kind of weight that's taken out of that mention as if it's just an aside, not that it could ever possibly be one of the most important determining factors as to how bad this went. Which is also where I think a lot of the public discussion around this is extremely mask off, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, you you have people explicitly, and I know that a lot of it is just basic ignorance, I'm sure, but there is a lot of like a ahistorical analysis uh, happening that is like, well, why are people advocating for being being able to have home-based care why are people advocating for disabled or el or elderly people being able to like have care uh in in their home or in in the community in some sense as opposed to in some sort of institution and uh it's almost portrayed as this sort of like reactionary thing to the institutions of the 60s as though they were just a outcropping like some sort of historical anomaly or something that was a policy decision that we made just then only then and now we are experiencing the dialectic of <laughs> do, you, do you know what i mean yeah no i think there's this there's this misconception and actually we t you, we talked about this in um my interview with liat ben moshe and she talks about this in her book too but there's this this misconception that that in the 60s when all these ex you know when geraldo rivera was out there being like look at what's happening in these institutions that when there was public outcry, everything closed and it was fine. But what the, you know, what many people don't realize is that, that a lot of states kept a lot of these facilities and that there was public outcry that only got us so far towards actually providing home and community-based care. There were a lot of promises made that have not been fulfilled for decades now. And when the ADA was passed, that was like, try, they tried to take that into consideration and no one enforced it. So then you had the Olmstead decision in 1999 where you, the Supreme Court said, no, if, if you do not provide le like alternatives to institutionalization, if you do not provide less restrictive settings, you're violating Title II of the ADA. And since Olmstead, really the most uh, remarkable development in this was like the Bernie Sanders campaign making a gesture at, oh, we should honor Olmstead, which is just really shows you how low the bar is that right, it, it yeah. took to 2018 to get that 
right? Right. So, I mean, in a way, we're kind of beating around the bush here because we're, we're referencing the way that it's talked about, but it might be instructive to go through some specific examples. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, I'll, I'll just preface this, especially if you're a new listener. This isn't necessarily something that we do a lot. We are not like a we clip call show. we call out other podcasts clip show here, but I do think that actually considering that just today, so same day, <laughs> Uh, Vox is the weeds. Vox Media is the weeds. Put out um, an episode. Can you bleep that out? Uh, the weeds, like just like actually, I feel like that's a curse word. Or maybe when the weeds plays, uh, or when you, whenever someone says the weeds, you can put in a sound effect that's like, um, like a, a howling noise from like a children's oh like TV yeah. special from <laughs> yeah. Halloween, like, 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 like an organ, like, like the weeds, like Dracula. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, I think that's a that's a good idea. Okay. So <laughs> Vox Media is the weeds. <laughs> Um, put out a uh, put out an episode on just this, and I have to say, I'm used to you know Matt Iglesias being kind of a take vacuum and a complete a void. Someone who's just like you know endlessly just like sucking up to cops and like lo- just you know loves property and shit like that. But it's just impressive to hear some of the pure ideology on display <laughs> in here. So I thought I'd I'd just take us through just a couple of things because uh, I think that these are statements again. You know we're I, I think we're using this because, you know, this is a relatively prominent, uh, these, these are like relatively prominent, uh, pundits, but also these are like, these are just takes that you hear all over the place. Like whenever you, everything that I've seen that talks about, uh, this long-term care thing is primarily, I think a lot of the commentate, uh, a lot of the commentary is happening by people who do not understand long-term care, people who don't really care about it as a policy. Thing. A lot of people who don't even know anyone in their life that might ever possibly need to use long-term we care right now. I mean, we don't know that, but like uh, people who certainly act like they don't. Right. right. Uh, and so, these are going to be clips from uh, Matt Iglesias and Dara Lind speaking on the Vox Media's The Weeds. <laughs> their, their takes on this. Taking over the nursing home and making it better oh. does not oh, no. generate a financial return to the investor. Like that's that's why it has that sad outcome, right? Like if you do a better job of taking care of elderly and disabled people, they benefit, but like mm. they don't. They don't stop being elderly right. and like what? stop needing help, right? And again, yes, it's different from and? certain aspects of healthcare, right? It's like if somebody gets sick and you have like a good medicine for them, then they get better. If you fix their broken bone, they get better. But people who are, you know, in their 80s and need nursing care, like they don't recover, like even if the facility is really, really good. So there's no like end point at which the investment sort of like stops or you say we've crossed a a cost benefit line. Yes. This is a person who you should definitely, whose opinions make a lot of sense in this space (laughs) and you should definitely trust on this issue. Yeah. Uh, To to break that, to to, to parse that cacophony of uh, shrill uh, noise. <laughs> shrill noise. Um, what a hysterical piece of shit showing his whole ass. Basically, why why put uh, money and energy in this infrastructure bill, quote unquote, into long term care? Because you know, disabled people aren't going to get better. Disabled uh, people aren't going to become undisabled if you if you treat them better. I, I mean, the, okay, so. I, there are, there are so many things wrong with what Matt Iglesias just said right now, 
Right. And, and I think chief among them is the idea that the reason that we should provide long-term care is simply a moral one, right? Because that's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying that he's trying to justify state-sponsored death and violence and coercive carceral practices by saying, listen, you know, if all was right in the world, if money grew on trees, then yes, absolutely, we should provide for people who need this assistance. But we live in the real world, <laughs> right? right? And that's so often how these arguments are framed. We live in the real world. You know, the sort well, of CBO lenses. Medicare for lenses. all. It's what you see over like Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. It's what you see like really anything. The, the idea of, you know, positively reforming society in any way. Notice I use the word reform Thank even, you. you know, like not even like complete transformation, like any any modest reform even is like and, you know. and the funny thing is that 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 view, the view that Matt Iglesias has is actually the biggest fucking fantasy, right? Because that's actually completely not how the world really is. The world really no. is the exact opposite of that, right? We need this. We there are so many things that we have underinvested in to the point of, you know, creating these like various pathways to state death, right? Yeah. And that's absolutely not a requirement and it doesn't save us any goddamn money. What it does <laughs> is it makes money for private companies. Right, exactly. Right? I mean, and that's and I feel like the things that they teach a lot of people is is first of all, you begin with the proposition that things are mostly okay uh, in the United right, States. Yeah. And like, even since, you know, I don't know, uh, like the economist starts like downgrading the United States, like ratings on various things. Generally, the the starting point is by believing that it's like this is a developed uh, country and uh, a lot of uh, good things, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, neocolonialist uh, sort of narrative. And then, and then from that, it, you know, the the next step is thinking about policy as if no human beings were involved. And then even if you do at some point think human beings are involved and like human costs are monetized at some point or like at some point you read a like a piece of investigative journalism about the conditions at these at these institutions. The next step is to is to essentially say this is a really tough problem and there's nothing we can do about it right. Um, right and yeah so like each of those steps are like very crucial in in the education and and that's and this is where it lands you which is analysis that is not really analysis at all um it's just goalkeeping uh, yeah. for right. whatever whatever happens to exist it actually doesn't matter what happens to exist is like the the, the goalkeeping remains the same a lot of it's right. just speculation too right and one of the things that that really uh really fuels my rage is how this idea like you know there's obviously you cannot ignore the stories that come out about like the horrific conditions in some nursing homes and in other facilities, right? Like you would have to work very hard as the kind of commentator that Matt Iglesias is to not see stories of people like dying covered in ants or, you know, just the horrible shit that you always see in the news. And it, this actually reminds me a lot of our conversation with Jules from last week from the main feed episode. But it's like this idea that the horrible conditions that exist in facilities somehow means that those facilities are cheap, right? 
and their cost effective option relative to providing good care is based on the fact that we think that violence and neglect are inexpensive. And that is not fucking true. Well, I can tell you exactly what. Yeah. Well, I can tell you exactly uh, what Iglesias would uh, say to this because there's this. There are there are two things I want to play really quick that are basically questioning the idea of whether it actually is meaningful at all to have a goal of being able to provide long-term care to people in their homes and in the community, like to do like community and and home-based long-term care, which is you know again something that has been the state has for, a dec- for the state has promised, but also that has been for, you know, for decades, a major pillar of uh, disability advocacy right. and something like the, the, just this fucking bare minimum, these scraps that people are fucking fighting literally for. Literally auto- just bare but minimum autonomy. Just, just literally like li- listen, listen to this. <sighs> I don't know how to say it. It's like, it's very inefficient to have like one person in one person's home helping them out with stuff. So it's both incredibly expensive from a like, cost per patient perspective but also like really really low paid work no, I just no 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 what what matt matt iglesias what is the cost of one night in a nursing home <laughs> please tell me right please do tell me what what the cost of one night in a nursing home is relative to one day of like hcbs this is insane i also this person fucking- <laughs> This Go person ahead. should not be talking about this or anything. Yeah, well, and you can tell that he clearly does not think that like he he goes on to like exp- expand this point basically, but you can tell that he does not think that there's any possibility that the that the home-based care workforce could grow as if like it's a job that in his mind is always so shitty that it will obviously have this sort of like upward bound of how many people actually want to work in this industry, right? He thinks people do not like to take care of other people. He doesn't see that as a fulfilling career or as a career it, that anyone in the realm of possibility could ever want. So to Matt Iglesias, people really, do it for free. People right. do it for like ton, millions of people do it for free. Like, and it's, it, it, it is a skill. I mean, like this, this person hasn't read anything or doesn't know <laughs> anything about the like labor market literature on this particular position. This is insane well also even you don't even need to read like labor market literature you could just like casually have glanced at business press because one thing that i find extremely ironic by about all of these pundits uh who are saying like well but doing the shift to home based care is too expensive and it's inefficient to have one person go like wouldn't it be better if we had you know make like make people go to infusion centers and stuff where where one nurse can service multiple people at a time isn't that more uh, more efficient etc the fucking ironic thing is that this entire sector is itself making a huge shift towards investing in home care services insurance companies themselves too are like privileging in in not in every instance but are often like privileging administering stuff in home care even go back to our episode recently our patron episode about amazon care uh, and everything like there's a reason that amazon and all of these other companies that are in this sector are building out their healthcare businesses not just on based on telehealth but based on the idea of sending someone like a home health aide or sending a nurse into your home to check up on you or to administer a treatment or to do something like that. And it's largely because like there's less overhead. 
right? I mean, it's yeah. just like this is this is one of the way like all of this is a huge not just um, because of that though, because not, yeah. also the often the in-home care can be higher quality and yeah. can provide the provider with a more complete picture of the patient's needs. It can like give the patient the actual time to interact with the care provider in a way that meets their needs versus if we have everything offsite in a facility, it's subject to the time constraints that the facility has put together programmatically for how long appointments will last. So from right. the intellectual and, and developmental disability perspective as well, home care is crucial for access purposes and also for the deaf, deaf community because often Often, you know, hospital facilities and doctor's offices are too cheap to get translators or interpreters. And it's, you know, even though that technically violates the ADA, no one gives a shit about violating right. the ADA because there are no consequences to it. Also, though, and this, also, I mean, I think this is a really good argument for having a, you know, very intentionally designed, well, uh, well built out public care workforce, specifically because you can imagine one of the one of the problems is. Uh, especially as these like insurance companies and companies like Amazon and like private equity companies get further entrenched into like buying up uh, like home care stuff. You could see situations where, uh, you know, these private companies, which are already, which already basically have like free reign to do stuff like uh, incentivizing people through uh, fitness trackers and shit like that um, to do the like the kinds of things where they have like well when the person goes into your home they have to like note um what's the famous example about uh the old like really shitty welfare uh how many shoes like how many shoes are yeah exactly how many shoes are if all the shoes are the the same size to make sure there's not a man staying in the apartment yeah right which uh you know that's an old example about a different thing but you can you can imagine all of those sorts of things like okay it's all like x or y like junk food or something and marking it. like, you know, I'm not saying that that's like that, that I want to be very clear. That's not any reason to like oppose um, home-based care, but that is a reason to say like, well, there's sh- this should be in public hands. There should be a <laughs> more effective and simple lever of public accountability for these, for these things. And it should not be a question of profit and market so that there is not a further incentive to fucking Right. do anything like that. And, and as many advocates, um, especially parents of, of intellectually and developmentally disabled children. And now there's like a lot of like, pro- like there's a lot of like problematic stuff where sometimes like parents speak for that constituency where they don't necessarily have the right to. But I'm talking about like the really on point parent activists who talk about like their children's autonomy and how important the care workers like you know, actual identity is as a member of their family, because that's a, that's another thing that's really important is that like to Matt Iglesias, he doesn't see these people as anything other than these sort of like anonymous replaceable workers. Right. And what in reality should develop out of these like working relationships is not like a, is not like a, a boss and consumer or consumer and employee relationship or customer relationship. It is a familial relationship. There is like kinship to all care work and you cannot ignore the fact that if you introduce negative financial incentivization into that, it will necessarily be violent. And if you introduce like coercive state structures into how that's administered, like the Medicaid spend down, because you can't get, you know, you cannot get long-term care based only on uh, SSDI determination. You have to be low income and have long to, to qualify for long-term care. You, you've created this structure of downward coercion that does not benefit anyone and right. goes counter to how these relationships 
should develop. You know what I mean? Like yeah. how, how they would flourish and how they would best benefit everyone in the situation, which like, you know, I guess in theory would benefit the economy and like product productivity or whatever. <laughs> if you care about that shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I think there's, so there's, uh, there's another way that this question of whether, uh, home-based care is, needed or beneficial or whatever uh, at all um, that that is engaged with um, not just in this recording that we're talking about, but I think in a lot of accounts that I've seen. Um, but I have one. I have another uh, clip on this that I I just I just <sighs> want to highlight in terms of this just oh, yeah. again, again, being presented as this like preference and the reason the assessment of how this currently works um, really shows like I, I, I think one, one of the core problems and again like the, the sort of like ignorance uh, in the the takes here mm -hmm. uh, and this one is blessedly not Matthew this is um, what's her name Darlind right like great. right I mean just like on you know on a on a basic level there is no government power to say you have to leave your home or, yes, we you know, we're going to stop you from paying, you know, as like from from however you can finance this paying for somebody to come to your home. It's just like because that underlying coercion isn't there, all of the incentive structures in the world aren't necessarily going to solve the underlying preference for I want to stay where I live. Damn it. Well, and there's incredible path dependence, right? If we had started out. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So apparently uh, it's a choice. If, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. What, so this is the thing. I don't know what fucking apparently HCBS waiting lists don't exist. Well, or it's like, I mean, they, they do talk about waiting lists, but it's like it people do not just like go. People do not often just like go into an institution or a nursing home or, or whatever because they just like decided that that's yeah. going to be like the best way they often often that will be you know maybe that's because that's the only thing that like uh that like the state's medicaid program will cover in part um maybe it's because they've like run out of like they like often have like run out of maybe other it's options because or money their family or members who are providing care need to work and need and can't provide care and work i mean the the levels of Where they coercion, don't have living family members right the levels yeah. of coercion that are involved in these these state to individual relationships, right? Uh, it's a private corporation. So like the, the level of coercion, the, the multiple types of overlapping, intertwining, coexistent co coercion in these scenarios is unbelievable. It's, yeah, you have to have a really it, like delimited understanding of what coercion is to think that there isn't coercion here. Or yeah. zero awareness of like how any of these programs actually work exactly which you have to you have to work hard to ignore this stuff right because it's it's not like it's it, i don't know it's not like it's not difficult to understand how coercion factors into every aspect of healthcare right it's all contingent on this like are is the body going to be ready to go back to work or not so like even just from that basis right like to not consider how coercion is at play here within like the general work relationship in any given person's life is it's it's mind boggling to me. I just want to sit there and I, I want to be in that room with them. And I want to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? What the actual fuck are you saying? Do I don't want to be anywhere near a zoom call. With Do you understand oh my God. like how, what you're saying? Cause it doesn't, 
make any sense. It's a no, historical. I mean, they clearly it's don't. Wrong. I mean, there, there's stuff like the the entire thing is Inaccurate. laced with like if there is one thing, you know, if the only word for it is like misinformation, basically the yeah. entire thing is just like ig- like ignorant drivel that is mostly based on just like again, it, mostly what they do is they just speculate. But this is not again. This is not just like we're we're using this because it's it's like convenient it's and almost yeah. funny and like. Uh, Vox Media's The Weeds is a very good foil for the death panel because you know they Fucking they, they like pretend to be uh, you know detail oriented wonks. They aspire like, to be detail oriented wonk wonks, and we aspire no, just to we're, we're detailed oriented people who aspire to eliminate wonks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to like again like belabor the dragging of uh, this podcast, but there is one final clip that I have for you both. Uh, I want to preface this by saying I think there's even a there's even an episode that we did uh, a while back called a death panel history of socialized medicine, which Mm -hmm. you can find on our Patreon feed. And one of the things that we talk about in there is how there's kind of a continuous political deferral of stuff like this, not just socialized medicine as a as an idea, but also like things like long-term care, specifically, uh, specifically long-term care. Specifically care. And the, some of the, some of the attempts to do it have flared out spectacularly. I think sometimes it seems almost just because like the pe- clearly as in the uh, case of what the Obama administration tried to do uh, with long-term care, mm-hmm. like it just doesn't seem like they fucking understand. And like, nobody how, how knows about like no but, one ever talks about how that got dropped from right. the ACA. And so I, I just want to, I just want to like play this one last clip because this is something that I think you will hear a lot and I think is especially is kind of one of the underlining things in all of this joking about like is this really infrastructure like what is infrastructure like the Ben Shapiro like your mom is infrastructure fucking tweet or whatever you know what I mean like um, which like read Sophie Lewis's book but anyway the um, here we see the questioning again, very rampant of whether this is just whether this is uh, it's not even whether this is necessary, whether this is um, just a just a political dud. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's tough, right? Because like the White House's official position is that there's going to be this third bill, right? right? And yeah. then child care is in the third bill, right? In effect, what happened is that long term care got promoted from yes. the third bill to the second bill, right? And it's <laughs> challenging to find a like super principled reason for that oh which on God. one Who level cares? Like, doesn't matter but i think that like in terms of congressional politics like it actually matters a lot but th- there are just many human beings for whom childcare is a higher priority issue uh-huh. than long term care for the elderly like joe biden's like new political coalition and like suburban women and all that stuff like i just it it feels to me like i i can see the child care's infrastructure bandwagon gaining a lot of enthusiasm to the mm-hmm. point where it semi derails this other thing and i think they may end up wishing that they had just like never popped the top on the care economy because it, it just like it's a very expansive concept right yeah. and if Yes, that is like the most beautiful vertical slice of them showing their whole ass. (laughs) Yeah, first of all, obviously, so ridiculous to see these things put in opposition to each other. And it just it's the same, you know, 
you could see, you could just as easily see someone like Iglesias saying like, what about, uh, what about like rezoning or whatever? Would that be more like a infrastructure, uh, pl- plan deal than, than the care economy? But it just never ceases to be maddening and sometimes demoralizing, but usually just like, I don't know, like fucking anger fuel basically to see how just, you know, just right out, just right out in the open is this extremely prevalent attitude. These people do not matter. Mm-hmm. These people are not human. They're it's not, not worth it. my, I mean, it's even like in, 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 again, in not just this podcast, well, but throughout, I, mean, I think it, the, the big irony to me is like the, you know, like one, I guess, aspersion that could be cast on like Washington sort of, uh, policymaking commentary is that it's, it's really, really oriented around the pr- productive e- economy. But I think the really it, like that, that is what they claim anyway. Like this is why gross domestic product gets so much traction and the, the aggregate macro economy gets so much traction versus the way that people actually experience the economy. Um, but I think that the thing that's really, even if that's what we presume that they're doing, what this kind of coverage shows is that there is this entire side of the uh, economy. I mean, particularly like social reproduction, which is a part of the the, the way in which the economy is produced. Like it's it, it, read any book on like macroeconomics, like it, it will not maybe use the, that term, but it will talk about the household sector Right. And what it right. does. And it's just completely ignored. They don't know how to talk about it. And, and this idea that like, oh, infrastructure is somehow, you know, that's only uh, that only in, in, in incorporates like the things that guys do with like jackhammers and wearing <laughs> hard hats and like they're out there, you know, like smoking a cigarette like on the highway. Um, it belies like no, th- there's no understanding really of like what makes the economy work at all. Um, if, if, if that is your understanding of infrastructure, um, it's just like, oh, well, that's like what we can see, like historical, like that is, you, you, you believe that you actually don't really understand anything about what you're reporting on right. uh, or how it connects to one another. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one thing that is obviously frustrating, right? Listening to this stuff and feeling like actively made to be less of a, a human being while I'm, you know, during the duration of the conversation. Like this is absolutely, as we're saying, not an uncommon take right now. It's very difficult to find anyone even saying, you know what, it's kind of interesting to include different types of care infrastructure into this proposal about jobs, right? Because or all the way to it's perhaps important to be proposing this right, right because as a as a um i'm not trying to like give the biden administration any credit here because i don't think that this is what they're doing but what you could do with something like this is you could make a very strong argument about the value of human life beyond a statistical value of human life here right you really you could use this opportunity of the pandemic of the horrific infrastructure of caring for the surplus population that we've always had in the united states and make a break with that tradition and really declare human value beyond, you know, contribution to GDP through a sort of rhetorical um, correlation like this. But that's absolutely not what's happening. And, and, and what what it's becoming, too, I think, is an opportunity for people to really show 
the entrenchment of eugenics, right? And in so many systems of value and, and, and structure and social morals, you know, because that's at the end of the day, unfortunately, um, how most people think about disabled people and elderly people is that they are a burden. And that's a very difficult narrative to counter when your entire society is oriented around a politic of cost-benefit analysis. It's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, it makes me mad, but it does give me like energy to keep pushing back because for, for all this like hate and horrible shit we've been talking about, it isn't real, right? It's all socially constructed, socially reproduced, bad ideas, right? And, and just because the dominant ideas about human life and human value are bad doesn't mean that like better views about that can't went out. Right. I, I think that one could just like ask, like, what is the, what is the function? Like, what is the value of this kind of commentary? And I think what it does is it stands in for some sort of um, hard look at uh, some of these ideas or it stands in for the way that one might uh, approach the like this. Again, we've talked about the 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 outlines of the plans very sketchy, right? There's a lot of different like mm-hmm. possibilities or ways to take what what the Biden administration is called like this investment in 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 home care. But like the approach taken here, which I think is very characteristic of what happens. I mean, I listened to uh, some other like kind of obscure, more like industry insider podcasts on like Washington politics, and they all have this sort of character, which is the tone is like there's there's no possible way. There's there's no possible way of of, of doing this. Um, this is going to be hard. Um, n- not like investigating. Okay, like what are the potential possibilities? What would this mean, etc. Like th- immediately uh, trying to find uh, a reason why this proposal doesn't really fit it's not like it shouldn't be part of this uh political agenda and i think it's just like the and even like the 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 little spin the little like mustard that's thrown on the pronunciation of the word trillion (laughs) you hear that and i i think that it stands in for like it stands in for analysis. It is an analysis. And what it does is it just gives people a reason uh, to focus on um, various political impossibilities rather than actually mapping, mapping like unmet needs and mapping like all of this demand that's like uh, pent up uh, for things that, that government has like failed to do. Right. Exactly. I mean, rather than mapping it, they're just simply asking the question if, you know, if it's necessary at all, even because aren't these people disposable? Yeah. 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 Well, and even and, you know, uh, this is one of the th- those things like how B said, you know, we don't want to give like I don't I don't want to I don't necessarily think that the intention behind the, the overall framing here was to uh, was to do this, but a potential opening, especially if you did kind of expand this idea to be more of, again, you know, uh, a much broader public benefit, a public entitlement, uh, uh, something like that. There is a massive opportunity here for and you know i know that this is not like the kind of thing that the federal government like the the federal government like uh traffics in typically but in this issue and in this being prominently on a national stage positioned as part of infrastructure week as part of the quote-unquote infrastructure week as part of this american jobs plan or whatever 
there is the total possibility for this as an intersection of the interests of both like organized labor and people who are by and large, you know, uh, referred to or thought of as like the surplus population, right? The, the positioning of this does allow for uh, for like for that overlap to build into more of a constituency, whereas there right. are all these historical examples of these interests completely working against each other. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, and you have to see policy as a tool to do that. Uh, right. I, right. You know, the, and and it is, and like historically speaking, you can find other examples of where, uh, you know, policy like joins. Uh, interests together that might not otherwise come together. That's what happens. Interests aren't interests aren't always just like, yeah, baked into the structural economic position of these different actors that they're forged through ideas. They're forged through um, uh, policy proposals like like this one. And, And yeah, you have to see you have to see politics as that sort of terrain. Otherwise, it just becomes this like, you know, a a litany of impossibilities. And I think really what, what becomes clear is that like when you, when you have this viewpoint of like the one that we like are talking about, the, these sort of underlying ideas are a perspective of like social Darwinism, right? It's really a survival of the fittest, uh, calculus and it just sort of underlies the entire discussion. I mean, it's like the taking taking the sort of value assessment of a of a person's life being relative only to their input to the economy is exactly what you're doing when you're saying we can provide care to people only if we make sure that we account for the ability to profit first. Right. And at the end of the day, that's what a lot of this conversation over infrastructure has actually been this week. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for today, right, guys? Uh, yes. <laughs> As always, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We are entirely listener-supported, so every patron helps. And with that, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.
And then if you look at the broader picture, we run very quickly into what does it mean to live in a society and <laughs> how much do you value a life? Do you think that there is any opportunity to use the, you know, we'll let Congress figure it out uh, angle that the administration is taking to maybe figure out a version of a care economy infrastructure proposal that gets it kind of intermediate solutions that expand the possibility horizon a little bit more and open up these sort of questions without steering us directly into, you know, death panels. 